the topic is biblical counseling and a definition that I tossed out last week for you to chew on a little bit goes something like this. Biblical counseling, a maturing believer bringing the comfort, correction, and guidance of the Word of God uh, to the heart of a soul in pain. A maturing believer, the, the uh, riches of the Word of God uh, coming to bear upon the life of someone who's struggling in, in some way, in, in almost any way. Um, the things that people bring to counseling are, um, are diverse. Um, sometimes people want to come and talk about something that they're, a behavior they're struggling with, alcoholism, something related to sexuality and eating disorder, um, uh, something that, uh, that, that they were doing and would like to stop doing. Um, sometimes people come and they want to talk about something that somebody is doing to them. It's something that's coming in from the outside. There's a marriage relational problem, a problem with somebody at work, with somebody in the family. Um, maybe it's that somebody has died and somebody else did that to you. They died and left you with grief. So, you know, people may want to come about what other people are, are, are doing to them. Um, often, uh, in my experience, uh, somewhere what's going on inside of a person is what they want to talk about. Um, their feelings and their emotions and how they uh, serve them well or don't seem to serve them well. Uh, um, struggles with, with anger, struggles with fear, anxiety, struggles with uh, depression, uh, um, struggles with not having any feelings at all just being numb uh, toward life. Uh, that's a real problem. Um, so, any, any one of those things can be something that comes to, to a biblical counselor, and it kind of underlies uh, the, a, a thought that I'd like you to remember is that counseling is not lecturing. Somebody doesn't come with a problem, and you can be a biblical counselor if you can lecture them if you can communicate a body of data to them. Um, it's not preaching. It's not preaching to one person. Counseling is basically a conversation, uh, a conversation about a life and a story. And as you talk about that life, um, there's many opportunities for biblical truth to be brought in, but it doesn't come as a lecture. It comes as a discovery. Uh, and, and that process is one of the main ways that makes counseling different from, uh, from a discipleship group uh, or from your experience in, bibli in biblical preaching where uh, the truth of the Word of God is being brought to you where you are and the struggles you may have. But in the counseling setting where it's one-on-one, -on -one, it's basically a conversation of discovery and um, the person who's doing the counseling knows more about the, the biblical message and its hope, but they don't start off knowing anything about what the actual flesh and blood and heart and soul problem of the person that they're talking to. So, everybody comes to counseling hopefully with curiosity 
the, the, the person in pain is curious about what might help, and the person who is um, the maturing believer is very curious about um, this person's story, how they got to where they are, and where it is that God's going to be taking to them. So, it's a very, if, you li- if you're, if you're uh, curious-minded, if you love scientific discovery, um, if, uh, uh, if you're wired to the world around you, then counseling is a great, a great thing to become involved in. Any question about that before we go visit our friend Nick? Again, we're going to go back and meet Nick. Uh, Becky. Uh, the, the question was, at what point does a biblical counselor realize they're in over their heads and that they need some, um, you know, further help? And that's a really great uh, question. Uh, the quick answer is, um, you, you, when, you feel, when you feel you're out of, out of range, uh, and, and the more that you do it, you know, if, if, if you're the first person you're talking to, if they're suicidal, you know, you better go get somebody, call an elder or pastor or 911 or something, you realize that that's a huge, but, um, but it, it's pretty much a process, and it's a, it's a good reason why, why biblical counseling gets done in community. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, a professional counselor has rigid rules of confidentiality. Um, uh, with very few limitations, breaks on those, but but ideally in this in this framework, um, it's not that we've got this guy who's our secret biblical counselor over there, and we'll shuffle you over to him on the sly. But you know these things come up in community groups, issues that we're struggling with in our life, but they're not deep dark secrets. One of the biggest problems with mental health in our age is that everybody keeps their struggles a secret until they blow up. Until you've been struggling with, you know, at what point does despair and disillusionment become a life-taxing depression? You know, it's we wait until the end, until it's completely unmanageable, whereas uh, I think God would say, you know, life is bound to have problems. Um, We live in a broken world, and we're broken, and we're dealing with broken people, and stuff's bound to come up. So, ideally, in the community of believers, we're talking about all these things um, farther back in the narrative, uh, and I think that that makes makes a difference. It's not to say that, uh, that you need someone outside of your church community. It's not to say that uh, you may not need uh, a physician or a psychiatrist's care, but um, the earlier you start looking at the struggle, the more, the more it becomes okay to be broken, the more it becomes okay to have needs, the more it becomes okay to not have it all together and therefore let people know the sooner that people come alongside of you, the sooner you take this to God, the sooner you open up to the guidance that may be in God's Word. So, so that's, the, that's kind of the journey, the path that, that uh, I would encourage people to go on. Okay, Nick. Uh, Nick um, came to me because he had gone to his family physician. And he had gone to his family physician because he was kind of toying with the idea of maybe a future in ministry. 
But the thing that he was struggling with, he saw, would be a terrible burden to, to bring into a life of pastoral ministry, and uh, so he wanted to talk to somebody about it. Uh, the, the, the problem was that um, um, when he was doing things that seemed to be like related to ministry, like talking to someone or giving a Bible talk, that he'd become so anxious uh, that he might actually um, vomit and uh, this would be pretty disruptive. So uh, he wanted a solution to uh, his, his, his vomiting and went to the doctor. And after a 20-minute visit with his family physician, he was given a prescription of generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, he got a number so that he could uh, get reimbursed or the doctor could get reimbursed by insurance. Uh, and he got a prescription for some medications. Uh, and this is... Uh, standard procedure, uh, but he was a little, he wanted a second opinion, and the second opinion that he wanted was, I'm wondering if there's another route to go besides medication, um, to recognize that anxiety can be treated with drugs, but it also uh, is a great candidate for talk therapy, uh, for sitting down and talking with someone, and uh, somehow or other, um, this young man, a believer, came to my door and we uh, began talking about this. Um, as we talked, um, it became clear, I think, to both of us that he did not have generalized anxiety disorder because generalized anxiety disorder occurs when a person finds it difficult to control worry on more days than not, over 50% of the days, for at least six months and has three or more symptoms. Symptoms of feeling nervous and irritable, having a sense of impending danger, panic, or doom, having an elevated heart rate, um, breathing ra hyperventilation, breathing rapidly, sweating, trembling, feeling weak or tired, difficulty concentrating, having trouble sleeping, uh, experiencing gastrointestinal problems, which could be on either end of the system uh, as well as in the middle. And... Um, He had some of those symptoms, but it's kind of interesting. Those symptoms are not exclusively owned by people who have generalized anxiety disorder. Um, one problem with the whole process of diagnosing and needing to come up with a number is that you're really looking at symptoms, and these symptoms occur over a huge range of different kinds of diagnoses. So you look at this, and how do you decide, does this person have anxiety, or maybe they've actually got a physical problem that's going on here. Um, it's, it's, it's fairly complicated to start with the symptom and get back to the cause. If you've got a fever, you know, you may have a fever because um, you've got an infection. You may have a fever because you've got the flu. Um, you may have a fever because you've been out in the sun too long. Um, the symptom d points to a problem, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what the problem is. With things that are related physically, 
We've got a whole range of tests and things people can do to get to what the problem is with a fair degree of accuracy. But as long as we've been studying um, the, the mind-body connection, uh, it still isn't always exactly clear what the, what the cause is. And if you make an assumption that if a person has anxiety, if you start by assuming that there's something wrong with the brain, that kind of begs the question. Because maybe the brain is actually doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Maybe God wired the brain precisely so that you don't walk in front of a bus. That there's an, an innate and a learned ability of the brain to assess situations, to assess danger, and to give you that kind of knee-jerk, pre-thought reaction uh, to an impending danger to keep you alive. You don't have time to think, is, how fast is that bus going uh, and how much clearance there is? No, you just jump. Um, you, you see a snake on the path and snakes are, for some of us, very problematic, and you jump. Um, after having jumped, you go back and you look and realize, Oh, that was a branch. That was a rubber hose there. Um, but it, better to be safe than sorry. Better to ha have God wired you to jump and then to go back when the thought analyzing part of your brain kicks in and look at what the situation is and reassess and say, oh, that was no problem at all. Um, maybe the brain is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Um, and maybe by tinkering with the brain, we get rid of the symptoms, but we don't get rid of the heart and core problem. And figuring all that out is, um, is, is a lot of work and can take a lot of time and a lot of experience. But just the assumption that um, if you're having some kind of an emotional problem, that there's a problem in the brain, uh, it may be the other way around. The brain's doing what it should. Maybe there is. You know, maybe, um, uh, maybe there really is a, a chemical problem or a wiring problem. But maybe it's that the brain's doing what it should be doing, and the the solution is n is to change to change your environment, get out of the way from in front of the bus, or change the way that you see the world through talking about it and through letting God's, God's word impact that. So anyway, um, here's, here's Nick. A lot of very real, very physical uh, distress. We discovered as we talked that, no, he doesn't have generalized anxiety disorder because he's not afraid of everything. Um, he's, he's not afraid of buses. He's not afraid of heights. He's not afraid of airplanes. He's, uh, he's afraid of people. People are the place that his anxieties show up. Well, there's also a diagnosis for that, a social anxiety disorder. Um, and that's where people make you uncomfortable. But the funny thing was, the more we talked, we realized he doesn't have anxiety about people in general. He wasn't anxious around me at all. He wasn't anxious around a number of other people. There was only a certain kind of people who made him anxious. And it wasn't so much the kind, but it was the role that they played in his life. He became anxious around a person that he perceived could, 
could form a negative judgment, a negative evaluation of him. They could find fault with who he was or what he was doing. And so when he was in situations like that, where somebody might look at him and say, you know, out louder to themselves, you fall short, that's when his anxiety would begin to ramp up and it ramped and ramped and ramped until it exploded uh, in making a hurried trip to the bathroom. Um, that's a different, you hear the difference there? That's a different thing. Um, you, you could say that the problem isn't the people, the problem is the way the people are perceived. Here's some examples. Um, this person loved doing intramural sports. That's where you get to have fun with sports, but uh, you, you never are going to be a professional, you know. And so he loved doing that, but intramural sports were an occasion of this kind of anxiety uh, because his pl fellow players might think, you know, not very good. He doesn't measure up. Um, doing a school project where he might be making a public presentation, oh, that was bad, you know. Uh, somebody might not think I was doing a very good job. Um, think about a boss at work. Bosses are always evaluating you, oh, that was bad. Um, um, these kind of occasions, through a whole range of things, it was the occasion uh, rather than the individual people, but it was the peop people were what he was afraid of, but the situation was being in a position where they might make a negative judgment. Now, think about that for a minute. If, if it's your professor who is making a negative judgment, that has long-term consequences. You know, you, you want to get good grades, graduate school depends on it, and all sorts of stuff like that. But, you know, is it really a problem if your teammates think, you know, you, you don't measure up. They joke about you over a beer or whatever. Um, how, how bad is that? How powerful is that? Well, it kind of depends on, on how much weight you give to other people's evaluations of you. And uh, if, if you give them a lot of weight, um, then they have the potential to really disrupt you. And that's really what was going on. He was giving a lot of weight to a lot of people in situations that um, had really only short-term impact, if any impact at all, but he was reading them in the context of this is, this is really bad. Um, think about, oh, here was another one. How about a date? <laughs> you know, it's hard to have a date when you know, you know that the person is, is evaluating you that you're going out with. This, this could be really, really a problem. So, um, it's quite a ways to come then from generalized anxiety disorder to, you know, the problem is that, that when you look at people, you see them as very much a threat to your wholeness, to your sense of well-being. Um, so, what do you do about that? One thing that you could do is say, um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's nasty, that, that's anxiety, that's really got you. But you're not alone. You know, the good news is we look through this window and we see your anxiety, 
there and we see how disabling it is. But I've got good news for you. We've got another window over here, and it's the window on Christ. It's the window on God. It's the window on Christianity. And so, what I want you to do is to look through these two windows and see that at the time that you're experiencing anxiety, to be able also then to turn and look and remember um, that your God is with you. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. Um, and, um, and, and so the, the one, uh, the, 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 the truth about who God is and His relationship to you kind of offsets the, the more you bring that up, the more you bring down the anxiety until you come to some kind of an even, some kind of an even keel. Um, that sounds pretty good to me. Um, uh, God is a very present help in time of trouble. Um, and uh, I think that's the way that it ought to work. And the reason it ought to work that way is because we're very forgetful. You know, we don't always live as, as if we're as if we have a living relationship, a living and real and true relationship um, with the God who is there, uh, we forget that. We, you know, we, it gets pushed out of our mind, not because we're necessarily hardened sinners, uh, but because we're easily distractible. We're, our, our cell phones distract us. Um, the message that we got, the newspaper, the news, uh, the cries of our child, the cries of our husband. Um, we get distracted and get caught up in, in what's, what we can see, what comes to us by our sense perceptions. And we forget about the fact that uh, we have this God. And so there's, there's real value in trying to uh, help folks build a more robust uh, experience of their relationship with God. This is one of the problems of the Israelites. The number of times in Deuteronomy that the word remember occurs is amazing uh, because Israel was always forgetting. You know, they'd had the whole exodus. Uh, you talk about something that was present in your experience, but they still forgot. They still wandered away and became distracted. So, so it's it's... Um, it's one reason why we, we need to hear the gospel preached to us every Sunday, and it's the reason we need to turn to His Word every day, and the reason we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day is to have that sense that, um, uh, that God is present and let that, give that voice, uh, a bigger voice to help drown out um, the, the voice that gets going when we sort of turn inward. We could have a good discussion about that. I'm going to push past the discussion, though, uh, and, and suggest I'm not sure that that's really enough. I think that's good. But um, I'm sometimes wondering if we do that, if we're sort of using God the same way that Nick's physician was using medication, that we're using the truth of God to deal with symptoms rather than to address the cause of the symptoms. So, 
Our conversation has been going on for several weeks. This did not get covered out in 20 minutes or in Freud's 50-minute hour. Uh, weeks were spent in this kind of conversation of discovery, uh, not lecture, but discovery. And uh, you began to see uh, what wasn't true, more clearly what was true. But there's something beyond this idea that um, if, if, the, if the window of anxiety is big for you, then open the window of God's presence and His care and His love. And the, the, the way to get at this is, where did, where did the fear of people get to be so big? How did, was He just born that way? Did that just sort of happen? Or is there, is there something... Um, is there something systemic? Is there something in his heart that lets um, the dangers of people's um, opinions loom larger than they are? Um, and that's sort of what we began to see as we began to talk. Um, sometimes you're talking to people about what's going on in their lives right now. Sometimes you're talking to them about what they want their life to be like. You know, if you, if you want to go to college, then you probably should study harder than you are in your uh, 11th and 12th grade. Um, if you want to go to seminary, you ought to be preparing. Uh, talking about your future is, is a good thing to talk about too, but sometimes we talk about the past because our lives do work as a story, uh, just as Scripture is the story of God's um, plan of redemption unfolding, and we're in that story. We each then have a personal story that starts experientially in our birth and, and goes on into the future. Um, sometimes we want to talk about the past, and as we talked about the past, we weren't doing any deep psychoanalysis or uncovering dark things. We were just talking about life, and what came up was, this was kind of interesting, and we didn't know where it was going to go, but he grew up in a family, a believing family, that um, was long on expectations and short on affirmation was, you know, what you needed to do to live well was pretty clear there. Um, but there wasn't, the family had didn't have, there wasn't a whole lot of emotion either, you know, hostile emotion or positive emotion. There were no fights and no holes being punched in drywall, but there wasn't a lot of hugging. Uh, there wasn't a lot of lap time. There wasn't a lot of, you know, I just really love you. I'm just so thankful that you're my son. Just so thankful that you're in our family. When there was that kind of thing, it seemed to be connected to the idea of, oh, we love it when you do well. We love it when you get good grades. We love it when you get the good citizen of the month award at school. We, we love to see that. We wonder when you bring home the 95% paper, what happened to the other 5%? Um, to kind of get the, the feel, the atmosphere that um, to know you're loved in this family 
you can know you're loved, but it, it's conditional upon how well, how well you do. And I believe, I don't know if you believe this, but I believe this, that God wired us for connection, that He wired us for connection with Him, a real genuine connection. God meets Adam and Eve in the garden. He talks to them. Uh, he cares for them. He cares for them enough even to say, where are you? After the fall, He's, he's looking for them eager for restoration. And He made that for us, too, that we were, we were made to be connected to one another. Um, we see that in, in spousal relationships. We see that in the love between a child and its mother, also between its father. Um, we see the importance of, of friendship and connection. And so, we come into this world kind of wired for that and looking for that as we grow up. And, and because we want that, then we see, um, how do I, what do I have to do to get it? Some people find the only way that they can get that is by sinful behavior, by going along with sinful behavior. Uh, for others, it's, just, it's more benign, but it's that growing sense of that people, I want, I want people to like me. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I want you all to like me. Um, I want to like you too. Um, but if that becomes that need uh, to be, have the approval of people, if I need that like I need oxygen, like I need that like I need food, uh, any, any sense that I have that I might not be getting that thing that I was wired for and created for, I might not be getting that. Now I'm in trouble just as if you've ever had a near-drowning experience, you know, you know you're in trouble. And, um, and, and you do, you know, you, dr you drown the rescuer, <laughs> um, if you can, uh, to preserve yourself. So, the, when the trigger goes off, usually before thinking, because you kind of learned this, that I'm not safe, I'm not nurtured, I'm not cared for it unless people are affirming me and giving me high fives, then the panic sets in, it starts growing, and, um, and it can grow pretty big. Um, it's, I often use the figure, it's like a spiral, you know, and you go around in a circle, but the next time you go around, you're deeper, and every time you go around, you get deeper into your own insecurity and fear um, because you're a bottomless well, and, uh, and, and it feeds on itself. A little bit of anxiety feeds on itself and becomes more anxiety. So, so what do you do with that? The person has learned that or believes, have come to believe that, that they need um, human affirmation in order to be whole and well. Um, I think the answer is that you come to realize that that, that has become the need for human affirmation. Is, it's, it's moved from being a, a, a need to being a demand. It's moved from being something that we want, a desire. It's moved to be something that's taking us over. It's become an idol. It's become the thing that, um, that we have to have. And again, um, you know, I, I'm glad that sometimes 
I care about what you think because there have been lots of times in my life when because I cared about what my wife thought or my children thought or my father thought or somebody else in my life, that that kept me from doing some really stupid, wicked, harmful, destructive things. So in God's mercy, you know, getting jerked back to reality because you care about what people think, that, that's not a bad thing. But when it takes you over the edge, when it takes you back into yourself, uh, and now you can't manage your life because you have to have this thing, it's your heroin. Um, it's your cocaine. And um, there's something wrong with that. Um, so, so here's what we did. Um, he began to see that, yeah, that, that the approval of people was a lot more important to him than the approval of God. Uh, and that this was the thing he could see now that, that I have to have, but this is what's driving him. And so the sort of the first step of it is awareness. He just needed to see that, that there was something in his life that was more important, that had taken, that was running his life, and it wasn't God. Um, and just recognizing that and naming that was an important first step. The second sort of step of that is, well, what are you going to do with that? Say, well, that's just the way I am. You know, I'm just stuck here. I've got this idol. And a lot of people do that. Um, but the, the second step is, is, is repentance, isn't it? To go to God and to say, you know, Father, I, I see that, that the thing that's been tripping me up all these years has been the fact that I put the approval of people in the place where your approval should be. Um, and it's not the way I want to run my life. I want to run my life on the basis of your approval. Um, I confess that and I ask for your help and for your mercy. Um, that can be a powerful thing. It can be even more powerful when you not only say that to God, but say that to one other human being in the fellowship and the community of faith to take the dark secret and bring it to the light. Um, sin loves darkness. Sin loves secrecy. But bringing that to the light, let one other trusted, trusted person know this, this core idolatry in your life creates the beginning of a path that goes in a good direction. So that's what was going on. Um, but that doesn't get you to change. Um, one thing that you know, how do you see God's approval? Do you see God's approval as, yeah, God is just like my parents. He's basically waiting to approve me when I get all my stuff in a pile. Um, but the only problem is I usually can't figure out how to pile it up. And when I do, I don't remember where I put it. So um, my relationship with God is real tenuous. So what my friend Nick needed to do was to really grow in his understanding that because of Christ, because of God's love for him, that he was a loved son of God, regardless of his performance, um, regardless of his accomplishments, that God loved him so much that he gave his, his only begotten son that he might have eternal life and he might have life and have it abundantly. He needed to see... Um, he, he needed to, to, to 
come up with what John says in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He needed to, to, to do something so that he was as awestruck by this reality that not only did God give you the name of child, but He actually gave you the place of child. That's what you are, the child of God, that you're at His table, you're at His breast, you're uh, in His family, um, that He gave you, uh, because of Christ, the adoption of sons, um, that, that, um, that, and that, that, that approval just changes who you are and, and where you are. And you see how the theology of adoption, uh, how practical that is, uh, or I hope you're going to see it in a minute anyway, that, that it's um, this growing in that awareness is, is more than knowing, more than saying that um, my God is there as a help for me when I've got this problem. Then you've got a problem, then God comes to the rescue. This is a whole different way of saying it. It's I see how messed up I am and alone I am, but I've got this big picture. I'm wrapped up in God's love. And so what did my friend need to do was he had been starving his brain and his heart on the love of God. And he needed to go on a… he needed… Um, he needed platelets. He needed red blood cells. He needed more oxygen. He needed therapy, uh, not counseling therapy. He needed the therapy of the Word of God that, folk, that helped him uh, soak up an awareness of, the, the, of God's approval of him. And um, so I use the word soak. He needed to soak um, in the love of God as revealed in Scripture uh, a lot. And I'd say, you know, um, certainly it was more than what he'd been doing uh, and possibly more than you're doing. Um, but what I was suggesting to him wasn't so much that this is, yeah, you need, you don't, you, you only take Procrit for a short period of time. You don't live on Procrit. You don't, um, you, you get your, your blood back to where it needs to be and, and going on. So, but, but what he needed to do, this needed to be a way of life for him because he was always just like I am at least, always going to fall off, um, fall off the wagon, fall off the cart, fall in his brain to lose touch with the fact that he lived and walked and breathed in fellowship with the loving and living true God. So, that, that's, that's big stuff. The only problem is that this next Thursday, he's got a, he's got a, some kind of a sports event, and he's headed right for one of these situations where he's going to be making a trip to the bathroom. So, you know, what do you do? You, you want to help the person actually make it through this. Well, um, pray about it before your, your class or before this event. You're thinking about it. Uh, you've been trying to nurture yourself, but those fears, they're deeply rooted in there, and they're going to be popping up like weeds in the spring. And so, anticipate that. Be prepared for that. Think about it. Pray about it. Ask, share with somebody else. Yeah, you know, this is going to be a real test. Can I, when I go out on that field, can I, um, can I go out there knowing that I'm a loved son of my father? Um, and let that be the thing that's really important to me. Can that 
push those other concerns kind of out of the way. And what we found out was, yes, yeah, sometimes he could and sometimes he couldn't. Uh, changing a behavior, a way of life uh, is hard. It's hard to quit smoking. Um, it's hard to go in a different direction. But um, the more we worked on it, the more we talked about it, the more this began to grow. Um, he needed often, for instance, he got a job with, a, with the boss from hell, and he had those kind of bosses, you know. The guy, guy, the guy really got, the boss enjoyed making the, the worm turn. He loved squir making people squirm. And that's rough for somebody who needs approval because he's absolutely getting the opposite. So my friend came up with this idea. He needed a word that he could use when those situations came up that would remind him of the love of God. And there was no magic word. I thought I had a really great word I wanted him to use, but he didn't like my word. He had a different word, but the thing that was important was it was a word that was very meaningful. It's a word that for him summed up uh, the, the power and love of God for him that, that could, could make him go through, um, through the valley of the shadow of death knowing that, that God was with him. And the word he picked, I think it was the word enough. Enough. Just he would say enough. And to me, that it meant, to him it meant you know, God is enough. God's love is enough. God's approval is enough. God's care is enough. So um, he began to do that more and more. Um, story went on for a while, wasn't perfect, but he, he chose not to go on medication. Um, he chose to uh, begin a course into pastoral ministry, go to seminary. Um, that, that's pretty intimidating, uh, but, uh, and counseling wasn't over, but it gave him a path and a way to go. Um, I use the image of the window. We open this window and see our problems. And we, if we see that window, um, oftentimes there's a drug for what's there. And that drug just looks at the symptoms. It just wants to fix that. And then we use the figure of you can open this other window over here and see, um, the, um, see God and see that He speaks into your life. But what I, what I want to, next week when we get together, I want to suggest that, um, and what I've tried to, to hint here is that I think the, the better way to see it is that you've got this little window that opens up on your own heart struggles and pain and maybe a cure. But I'd like to suggest that there's a great big window. It's a window on all of life, on all the realities of the world that we see and the people who are in it, that God is also. And so I'm, I'm envisioning a casement window, you know, you open it up and they're hinged on the side and it swings open. And now you, you get this big picture. Uh, instead of seeing yourself in this little window, you look really big. Uh, you're filling that window. But you open this big window and see that what's really big is God, is God in His in his, in his person, in His power, in His plans, um, in His presence. And you're in that picture. You're not out of that picture. You're in it. But, you know, God, God's big enough to take care of you. And I'd like to pursue that a little bit more when we get together next week. Thanks very much. Uh,
I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards, either today or give me a jingle. Love to talk to you.